Well, how are you at telling yourself the truth? Have you ever stopped to think about this? Jerry was a wreck when it came to his life. He believed in God most of his life, and now after 15 years of marriage, he was forced to live alone, separated from his family, facing a divorce that he didn't want. He thought it was the end of the world. He was miserable. He was in pain. And so he turned to medicate that pain with some alcohol and liquor. He was unhappy. He wanted to die because he couldn't see his way out of his circumstances. Well, thankfully, he finally decided to seek counseling. And through a process over time, he saw that his life didn't have to be over. He stopped thinking about taking his own life, and his faith in God began to stretch a little bit. He started thinking of God as a giver of good, and little by little, he changed. And to ask Jerry how this happened, he explains it this day. One day, while sitting groveling in my sorrows, do you ever do that? I listened to the words I'd been telling myself. Things like, oh, what's the use? I'm all alone. Nobody loves me or cares about me. Nobody wants to be with me. I'm rejected. I'm useless. I can't do anything right. Suddenly I was shocked. I thought, what am I telling myself, says Jerry. He realized that his depression was not a result of his divorce, but rather what he was telling himself about his divorce. As a result, he began to evaluate the truthfulness of his self-talk and refused to rehearse self-destroying lies. Friends, is it ever the truth to say, I'm worthless? Is it ever the truth to say, I can do nothing right? Is it ever the truth to say, what's the point? And just give up. Here's a list of things that we often say, and I have, instead of such and such, he said this, I'm a failure and no good. Rather, he said, the marriage failed, but I'm deeply loved by God, therefore I am important. Do you see the difference? Huge difference. He said, I'm so lonely and miserable, and he learned to say, I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. I still have people in my life, I still have people that care about me, that are seeking me out, I can seek them out and invest in them. So I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. He used to say, I'm separated from my family and there's no joy anymore for me. Now again, really, is that a truthful statement? And he learned to say, I'm separated from my family and that hurts. He's not just trying to sugarcoat things. He says, but I can function even though I hurt. That's a true statement. Where the other is just over the top, too much. Not true. He probably could have found enough evidence to support the thought of being lonely, but he chose to give evidence to prove that he was not lonely instead. He stopped drinking. 
He argued with the destructive sentences he had been telling himself. He told himself the truth about his situation and his standing with God. Now, granted, his circumstances were the same. The only thing that had changed is what he told himself about the circumstances. You could say, well, this is just semantics. Well, perhaps. This is just a mental thing. Well, perhaps. There is such a thing as emotional health. Emotional IQ, sometimes they call it. But what we say about things, if they are not true and accurate, can lead us to a dark place, can't they? In fact, I would go as far as to say, who puts these thoughts in our head? The devil does. Give up. What are you bothering to to keep at this for? What's the point? You can never get it right. But those aren't true statements. I bet you get it right most of the time. But if you're like many of us, we harbor and we dwell on the one time we get it wrong and we just throw out altogether the times that we get it right. Isn't it true? What does the Bible have to say? John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of the matter is this hurts, according to Jerry. But the truth is, I can also find joy in other areas and aspects of life. The truth is, I did get it wrong in this situation, but that doesn't mean I get it wrong in every situation. And what we tell ourselves about our circumstances is a big deal. Are you telling yourself the truth, or are you beating yourself up? Sometimes we even have catchphrases for this kind of thing. Oh, there I go again. What is that implying? I never get it right. If I didn't have my head attached, I'd lose that too. And that's not true. You might on occasion, but not all the time. So instead of I'm dumb, thank you, Lord, for giving me intelligence. Instead of I'm unattractive, thank you, Lord, for making me attractive. Aren't we in his image? Did he make us ugly and deplorable? I shouldn't use that word. Please don't like me, or people don't like me. Thank you, Lord, for making me likable. I have no talent. Thank you, Lord, for the talents you've given me. I'm miserable. How about replacing it with, I can choose to be content. Isn't that a biblical idea? Whatever the circumstance I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be in need. Instead of I'm lonely, thank you, Lord, for my friends. Instead of I'm poor, thank you, Lord, for prospering me, for providing for my needs. Instead of I'm anxious, thank you, Lord, for peace, the peace that I can have in you in spite of my circumstance. That's a true and accurate thought. Proverbs 15, 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. If we're not careful, if we don't tell ourselves the truth about circumstances, it can, in fact, break our spirit. 
2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so you think something that's not true, that's not accurate, you stop it right there, you take it captive, and you say, that's not true. I do have people that care about me. I do have people that love me. It's a biblical idea. Psalms 15, 1 and 2. Lord, this is a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Because the reality is, out of my heart, the wellsprings of life, right? So if my heart is wicked, if my heart is bent, if my heart is crooked, or if I'm telling myself things that are not truthful, what's the old phrase go? You tell somebody a lie long enough and they'll believe it? Isn't that what the devil does for self-sabotage? You'll never get it right. You've always been a failure. That's not true. Psalm 34, 13, and 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Pursue the truth. Pursue peace. Pursue the right ways of thinking in your mind. You'll never have peace if you're always putting yourself down. Isn't that a true statement? Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You've heard it before. God doesn't make junk and you're not the exception to the rule. Your heavenly father loves you. He cares for you. He's infinitely proud of you. Does that mean you have it all right? Not necessarily, but he still loves you. Elizabeth, do our kids have it all right? Do we love them anyway? You bet we do. We take a couple thousand pictures a week. Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, Think, focus on these things. So we're continuing this series on Joseph. And at the heart of this series, we see the sovereignty of God, how he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and how his plans, his purposes prevail. Regardless of your trial today, God is in control. And we've seen that in the story of Joseph And just a quick review, you know the story of Joseph well, but at age 17, he had some dreams. He decided to tell these dreams to his brothers, and in the dream, everybody was bowing down to him, whether it was sheaves or whether it was the sun, moon, and stars, and and this didn't cause the brothers to like him anymore, and so the plot was developed, let's kill him, no, 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 let's just throw him in a pit, let's sell him as a slave, and that's what they did at 17 years old, and it was on that road to Egypt that I believe he gave, in fact, Spirit of Prophecy tells us he dedicated his life to the Lord on that journey. Saying, Lord, I don't know what this is going to bring. I don't know if I'll ever see my family again. But Lord, you have to be with me. Go with me. And so we know for the next 10 years there in Egypt, life was quite different. But we know that Potiphar 
found Joseph and he decided to put him in charge of everything that he had. And so for 10 years, he was in the service of Potiphar. But Potiphar's wife tries aggressively to seduce him. But what does Joseph do? He refuses. How could he do such a wicked thing and sin against God? If you haven't figured it out by now, everything Joseph does is in context to his relationship with God. And so he does the right thing. He stands up for the right, but he's framed. He's put in prison. It's better than being killed, which is what should have happened if Potiphar believed him. And so yet again, we see Joseph destitute. But again, what the scripture reminds us over and over and over, even in prison, where's God? God was with Joseph. And so in a short period of time, he's placed in charge of the prison. And after being in prison, we think about a year as we uh, do some math from either side of this equation. And after he's there, he's put in charge of everything. And there's two individuals that come, the cupbearer and the baker. And we talked about this already. They, They themselves have dreams. And it's Joseph that God works through to provide the interpretation of this dream. And we looked at that last time. If you have your Bibles, I want to look at a verse that we looked at before, but it's in Genesis chapter 40, because he gives a correct interpretation. We know that the cupbearer is going to be back in the the king or, or Pharaoh's good graces. And Joseph seeks to make an earnest plea. And we see the humanness of Joseph here in chapter 40, Verse 14, he says to them, but remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into this dungeon. So who does he want them to remember? Me. Don't forget me. Get me out of here. I don't deserve to be here. We could read into this as Joseph's attempt to fix the situation. His attempt to get out of his suffering circumstances. But they go back and the cupbearer forgets. And two years go by, so we're three years he's in prison, forgotten, asking the questions, Lord, is this really what you wanted for me? Is this your plan for my life? Is this the best I can offer you here in this prison with a bunch of misfits and criminals? Will I ever get out of this cave? And Joseph sees an opening. He gives it his best shot. But for days and weeks and months, And years, nothing happens. God, where are you? Now, I would imagine that Joseph is in a prime situation to be caught up with the self-pity and not telling himself the truth. I'm no good. What's the point? I'll never succeed. I keep standing for the right, and look where it gets me. My situation's hopeless. I'm worthless. I might as well give up. And he could have slipped into depression. He could have been suicidal. He could have been any number of things. But I'm confident by the chapter we're going to read today that that doesn't happen. 
I'm confident that Joseph told himself the truth about the situation. I may be in prison. I may not like it, but I know God's still with me. I know God can still use me right here. I know God has a plan and purpose for my life. And you know what? I can find joy helping the prisoners right here. I can have peace knowing that my life is in his hands. And if this is where he wants me, so be it. Philippians 4.8, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I think Joseph was at peace. What makes me think that? Well, pull out your Bibles. Let's read Genesis chapter 41. Maybe you're already there because we just read a verse in chapter 40. Genesis chapter 41, it says, Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. That's in context to, he said, Don't forget me, and they did for two whole years. That Pharaoh now is the one that had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. Verse 4, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly, seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Verse 8, now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the musicians of Egypt and all his wise men and Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh has that ever happened to you you bring together all the wisest that can possibly give any kind of feedback on the situation they say we have no idea There is no hope for your situation. It is hopeless. And that's the report that Pharaoh gets back. But then in verse 9, the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, I remember. Oh, man, I remember my faults this day when Pharaoh was angry with with his servants and put me in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. Remember that time? It was two years ago. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And verse 13, and it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. And he restored me to my office, and he hanged him. And in verse 14, and Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. Now wait right there. 
What is it that convinces the king to call for this nobody? He's not a magician. He's not a wise man. He's in a dungeon. This takes a little humility on the part of the king. But he calls for Joseph. Why? Because he has seen that God has used this man. He doesn't understand all these details just yet. But there is a fulfillment of prophecy. And it convinces him that this person's worth listening to. Friends, in our prophetic movement, it is the gift of prophecy. It is the prophecy of this book. It is the prophecy of Daniel 2, of the 2300 days, of when Messiah would come, of the judgment, of the little horn, the sea beast, the land beast. It's prophecy that really gives us our foundation and and really gives us a, a sense of importance to our message. It brings all of what we talk about into a very distilled, relevant terms for this world and where we are in history. Now, granted, God is love, but you sow somebody prophecy, and all of a sudden, they really want to get to know that God of love because they see a God whose hand has been writing down through the ages that knows what's going to happen before it happens, and in a moment, they are filled with the awe and the power of a God much bigger than they've ever imagined before, yet that's the same God that loves them. And they are quickened to the heart, and they respond, and Pharaoh responds. He said, bring that man to me. I want to talk to him. Verse 14, and Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothes, and came to Pharaoh. Can you imagine? It's a day like any other. You're in the dungeon. Can you picture what a dungeon might look like and what it might smell like and what you might smell like? What Joseph looked like? He hasn't shaved in a while. He's looking rough. All of a sudden, there's a squeak. I mean, he's in charge of the prison, so we don't know exactly his role, but at some point, somebody walks in who obviously from their attire does not belong there. And they say, Joseph, yeah, right here. You're coming with me. Pharaoh wants to see you. What for? What did I do? Get changed, here's some clothes, shave. Man, he hasn't seen a razor in so long. He gets a shower. He puts on clothes that are just really nice. I mean, this started out like any other day, but this isn't looking like any other day. Well, can you give me a week to to pray and, and, and spiritually get prepared for this meet? No, it's now, buddy. He wants you. You got 30 minutes. Slam. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, when he's finally standing in his presence, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you, that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Now, if we think of this as a political career, Joseph, this is it. Don't blow it. What you say here is going to make or break What's he going to choose to say? You know, funny you should ask. They used to call me the dreamer. I have a little bit of experience with dreams. Why don't you tell me what you know, and I'll I'll give it a shot. Is that what he says? Verse 16, so Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, 
It is not in me. Let's be clear. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He's saying very humbly, I don't have the answer. But there's a God in heaven who does. God will give you peace, just like he gave me peace in the middle of the dungeon. I really had every excuse to be angry and depressed and resentful and want revenge and just be, but I come up here and I'm at peace and that same God can give you peace too. There's a God that knows the answer to your dream. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank. And he retells the story that we've just read. And in verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. And here, we're talking in the contagious avenues, how to insert God into the conversation in ways that are, are natural. He's already talked about, it's not me, it's God. That's one. But he says here again, because it's all about God for Joseph, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and the ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. Third time mentioned, God has shown Pharaoh, just in case you missed it the first few times, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty of, will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. No king wants to hear that. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And he goes on, verse 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, number four, and God, number five, will shortly bring it to pass. Who's interpreting? Who's the power coming from? Who's giving this to you, Pharaoh? In case you missed it five times, it's God, it's God, it's God, it's God, it's God. And then he does something that is really kind of bold, especially considering where he's coming from. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as reserved for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Verse 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants. And verse 38, Pharaoh speaks up. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? That's the question, and he's leaving it out there. Who can we find? This is the perfect opportunity for the humanity of Joseph to say, well, I'd be more than willing. I mean, really, in, in the entire room, who fits the bill? 
Joseph. He's the only one that fits the bill. He asks the question, expecting an answer, and Joseph gives no answer. He has learned the lesson that if, it, if it's going to be done, God is going to do it. I'm not going to insert myself. I'm not going to force my way. I'm not going to be political about it. I'm just simply going to let God be God. And if he wants me to take that position, he's going to have to put it in my lap. And so then we have a new paragraph in my Bible, but it's the same person speaking. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, he got it, by the way, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand. That is spending power. That is authority. That is the ability to say, This is what's going to happen. Done. He takes it off of his hand, and he puts it on Joseph's hand. He says, bring fine garments and put them on him. Put a gold chain around his neck. And he had a ride in the second chariot. Now you guys are listening. Chariot? What? This was a chariot like no other chariot. And they cried out before him, bow the knee when he came. I imagine that was maybe a little awkward. I mean, we're talking in the course of a few hours. He goes from you know, bedhead in the dungeon to having all the power, all the authority, second in command like that. He ends up with a wife. He ends up with two young sons. Look at what he names them, verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. What does it mean? For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. He names his son in relationship to what God has done in his life. He doesn't say, look at this great thing that I've done. He names his kid after that. The second one, Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Every time he calls his son, he's reminded, God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. When does that ever happen? You're afflicted, and then you're second in command. Friends, God has a way of doing things that are far beyond what you and I can ever orchestrate. And it goes on to describe that he starts straight away and he's going to and fro throughout the land. And they store up so much food that they stopped counting for it was immeasurable, it says in verse 49. And then in verse 54, the famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And so Joseph could open the storehouses. He could sell to the people tragedy averted. So what do we learn in this story? Literally, God is the God of the impossible. And when we trust him and we put him in charge to do things in his way and in his time, I promise you he'll do it better than you and I do it each and every time. The question is, will we continue to trust, especially when we're still in the dungeon? God, have you forgotten me? He says, no, I'm teaching you lessons that you'll need to learn. 
You know, you can go through the story of Joseph. I know you know it well. You're never going to find anywhere in his story where Joseph becomes prideful and arrogant and makes a moral fall or a slip or anything else. And I think it's because it was hammered into him. Maybe hammer's not the right word. But he is learning the hard lessons of faithfulness to God, faithfulness to God. God is in control. He's the one who put me here. If he had some little quip and all of a sudden he's put there, he says, look what I did. Look at that smart thing that I said. But he's trusting fully in God, and we don't see that in his story. He continues to trust in the Lord. And is in this high and uplifted role. From this to this in a matter of hours. What does 1 Peter 5, 6 say? Therefore, humble yourselves. What does it mean to humble yourself? I don't know if you can notice. Those letters are a little bit smaller. Because you and I are a lot smaller. Under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. Who's going to do the exalting? God will. When will it be? In his time. Humble yourselves. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Be humble. Under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you in due time. Here's another one you know well. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Friends, I don't know when God's due time is to lift you up. But I know how the story ends. And it may not be tomorrow, it may not be the next day, it may not be next week, next month, it may not be next year. It may not be until Jesus comes. But if we read our Bibles, we know how the story ends, and his children will be lifted up in due time, in due season. God does have the last word. One more verse, or a few more verses, I should say, but one more page, turn in your Bible. Let's look at Revelation 21 as we close. At the end of our Bibles here, the last book, next to last chapter, we read these words in Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Verse 2, then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's what he's wanted all along. Finally, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And how personal is this? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, 
no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? He said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son and my daughter. God does have the last word. These things are written. They are true. They are faithful, the text says. God will lift you up in due time. Behold, all things will become new. The pain, the heartache, the sickness, the suffering will be done. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, the verse says. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. Friends, Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that? And someday, if you and I are faithful to him, you will reap the rewards of righteousness. It may be just as stark as Joseph's experience. One day seeming hopeless, and the next day, God comes to deliver you. But if you hold on one day, he will come to take you home. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Joseph. We thank you for this period in his life when he again trusted your hand, trusted your providence to lead and guide and direct. Lord, whatever situation we are facing today, help us to not jump in and fix it. Help us not to tell ourselves lies and rehearse lies Help us to rehearse the truth, which is your promises. And you promise that the truth will set us free. The truth of the matter is you have it all under control. The truth of the matter is that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And the truth of the matter is you will raise us up in your time. Help us to humble ourselves and trust in the mighty hand of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.